Well, I'm here with Joseph Goldstein, who's a uh, very old friend and um, quite respected meditation teacher, and we're going to talk about all things related to meditation and mindfulness. And Joseph and I have known each other for about 25 years, and we, he was one of my first meditation teachers and became uh, a friend a long time ago. We spent a lot of time studying with, with other teachers in Asia. He's here uh, recording this interview with me under less than ideal audio conditions, so we apologize for that. Joseph, for those of you who don't know, started the Insight Meditation Society in Western Massachusetts, and has probably done more than anyone, uh, certainly as much as anyone, to establish the practice of mindfulness in the West and uh, this explosion of interest you see in mindfulness in the scientific community and in clinical practice uh, is largely the result of how clearly he and his colleagues have taught it to thousands of Westerners. So Joseph and I are going to talk about mindfulness and the mind in general and probably push into some areas of interest only to us and alienate uh, 99% of our listeners, but that's what we are free to do. Hmm. So Joseph, thank you for being here and thank you for uh, agreeing to talk about all this with me. I'm delighted to have a chance to get get back into the meat of our discussions, yeah. which we've had over all these years. Joseph and I have had uh, arguments on... <laughs> Just about everything. Yes. <laughs> About everything, and on on uh, transcontinental uh, flights where he has been captive and desperate to uh, avoid me, however unsuccessfully. So, uh, before we get into esoterica, tell us a little bit about how you got into meditation and how you how this became your life's mm. work. Well, I was uh, studying philosophy at uh, Columbia University in New York as an undergraduate, and. By the time my senior year came around, I was really anxious just to get out and see the world. And this was in 1965, and it was uh, just uh, soon after the Peace Corps was established. Uh, so that seemed to me a, a really good vehicle for getting out and, and seeing new parts of the world. So I applied to the Peace Corps, and I actually applied to go to East Africa, but uh, as uh, fate or karma or accident or whatever, whatever the conditions may be, uh, happened, they sent me to Thailand, which turned out to be a very fortunate happening. Uh, because while I was in Thailand, I had my first contact really with Buddhism and Buddhist teachings and meditation. Soon after I started teaching in Bangkok, I was teaching English, uh, I started going to discussion group at the Marble Temple, which is quite a famous temple mm. in Bangkok. And there were some Western monks who were leading the discussion, kind of introducing Westerners you know, to some of the Buddhist ideas and concepts. Of course, having just graduated college in philosophy, I went there full of my own ideas about things, and I would be asking so many questions in the group that people would stop coming. You know, it's like, I think we've all been in groups like that. Right. Uh, and we've probably both been that you, person. You were the insufferable blowhard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so finally, this one monk says, you know, Joseph, I think you ought to meditate. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I was mm. 21, 22 years old in the Far East. It was all extremely exotic to me. And it just seemed like a... A really interesting thing to do. So he gave me some initial instruction, and I also began a little reading. Uh, 
there's one classic book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, mm -hmm. uh, which laid out the basic methodology. Uh, and so I gathered kind of all the sitting paraphernalia, cushions and this and that, you know, to sit. And the very first time I set my alarm clock for five minutes, mm -hmm. you know, because I didn't want to oversit. But something quite amazing happened in that first five minutes. It, and it really uh, changed the whole course of my life. So, so the first time you sat, you actually connected with the practice and realized it was something worth looking into. Well, what I realized, it wasn't that I had any great enlightenment experience, but what I realized was that there was a way to look into the mind hmm. as well as looking out through it. And my whole life, I had just been looking out, right. out of my mind yeah. rather than looking into it. So it was like a turning in place. Yeah. And that just that was so extraordinary to me. You know, I got so excited, I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, <laughs> Arguably the most narcissistic thing you could possibly do. <laughs> it was, well, it, uh, more charitably, it was naive. <laughs> uh, it, it really came out of this tremendous enthusiasm for, you know, what I felt I was discovering. Right. Uh, obviously, they didn't come back very, very often. Yeah. It made for a poor viewing experience. <laughs> Very poor. Uh, but that was the beginning. You know, and then, you know, over the course of my time in the Peace Corps, I just, you know, I extended time past five minutes a little bit. But still. Uh, so, so how long did it take for you to actually go on intensive retreat? Oh, at the end of my Peace Corps stay, I had an experience. Somebody was reading from a Tibetan text friend was reading. So at this point you had been meditating for what, a, a year? Or? Yeah, maybe a year, but very but just, intermittently. Just an hour a day or something? Probably not even, right. you know, but I was dabbling. Yeah. I was just dabbling in it and reading and going to some classes mm -hmm. and trying to find out more about it. But just at the end of my Peace Corps stay before I left for home, I had a really transformative experience listening to somebody read from a Tibetan text. Mm -hmm. And it just was an experience of opening to an understanding of the mind. And kind of in classical Buddhist terms, they talk about the unborn or the unformed, or using words mm -hmm. like that to describe the freest aspect of the mind. Yeah, so something happened. What the hell happened? <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody was reading this text, a Tibetan text, uh, and that addition, that was a very early translation of it, right. which a translation which has now been uh, so so a faulty translation, a faulty, a faulty yeah. translation <laughs> by not, Evans Wenz, yeah, the, called the book of the, book of the, of the Tibetan yeah. book of the Great Liberation, right. Uh, there have since been much more careful translations of it, right? And very powerful ones. But even in that faulty translations, have the new translations revised the very line you found so useful? No. Okay. No. no. All right. So let's so right. so back up. You've got you've got this this uh, faulty Victorian translation of the <laughs> Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, and you have a friend who's reading it out loud to you, right? And then. At one point in the reading, just on the word unborn, hmm. the mind opened to that experience. Right. 
Let's say more say more about that. You hear this word unborn, you're you're looking into your mind all the while, what changes? So it's it's a momentary experience that has the power of a lightning bolt. So it's a a unique moment of the mind going from being aware of different things arising moment after moment, you know, like sights and sounds and the breath and the mind itself. And then upon hearing the word unborn, I mean, it's, it's very hard to describe, but it was, if you think literally of what that word means, unborn, it's, it's the experience of non-occurrence. Mm. So, right, being mm. born is something occurring. It's so moment after moment experience is being born and dying, being born and mm. dying, moment after moment. Unborn is a moment of non-occurrence, which broke that stream of continual birth, of continual occurrence. And the, the metaphor, or a simile, one of those, mm. uh, right after, right after that moment, I described it to myself as zero. It was the experience of zero. Right. So, so the experience is was, however difficult it is to characterize, it entailed the loss of ordinary sensory experience. You're yes. no longer seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Right. So the so the lights went out, in the, some sense. The lights went out in some sense, but there was a knowing of that. Right. Right. And this this gets into another, you know, a deeper discussion of that experience, which we might yeah have yeah later. So, so it is. So it it is the knowing of a reality. That doesn't entail ordinary sensory perception, right. and it's zero. Right. It's like a, re a rebooting of, of the hard drive. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that became so apparent is that zero is not nothing. Right. Zero is a powerful number. Yeah. And perhaps the most powerful number. And the fruit of the fruit of that experience was the immediate understanding and realization of the selflessness of this whole process we call life that there's no there's no one to whom it's happening right it, it's a process of what one teacher described as just empty phenomena rolling on meaning empty of self empty of core substance yeah yeah that that experience doesn't refer back to anyone uh, and that just that all was just understood completely in that moment that that view of self was just completely gone so so then what take me back to the the, the immediate aftermath of that experience so your friend is reading this this book to you right. on the word unborn right. you have this this cessation experience you come out of it so completely the, completely different. I, when your I mind is blown and, and and i tell him to stop reading and so, yeah. so how long do you think you had been gone oh, for just just a second uh, yeah mo uh, momentary right and so you could so you have this transformation and now you're you you're articulating it to your friend and I, what's, I was, what, what's that next half hour like the, the next half hour was like i was in a completely altered sense of everything 
because it was free of any notion of self. The, the, the self-center had just dropped away. Right. But I, this wasn't the fruit of many years of practice. Yeah. So I, had, I really didn't have any, I had very little context for understanding this, although I knew enough that something familiar within the Buddhist tradition mm. had just happened, but I didn't understand the mechanism or what led up to it or anything. I didn't right. have any context. Was there, was there anything negative about it or scary about it? Were you at all destabilized in a yeah. way that where you were kind of searching to get back to who you were? Or I, I wasn't searching to get back to who I was, but the, there was a period of, I think, some days where, yeah, it was it was destabilizing of my previous way of being and mm. the conventional way of being. So I was kind of <laughs> trying to find my sea legs in all this. Right. Uh, but did, was there uh, part of you at all that worried about it, that thought no. about it in, 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 in psychopathological no. terms? No. Or? no. E e even, as I, even as there was kind of uncertainty or about how to manifest. Right you know, uh, how to relate. No, I, I always felt that something tremendously powerful and revealing had happened. Right. To stick with the immediate mm. aftermath, was that the character of your experience in that moment was changed, but if I recall correctly, you were experiencing things which now you don't necessarily tend to experience. I mean, now selflessness is still obvious to you. But there were features of your experience in the immediate aftermath of cessation that are not true right now. Uh, that, so what, what, was, what, was, what was especially salient or psychedelic or otherwise odd about those next hours? Or it, it was like it was days, too. It was like, didn't you have like yeah, a week where yeah, you felt yeah, like yeah. you were as much the other person in the room as right. you were self yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Uh, but also just... <laughs> This happened 50 years ago. Yeah. So even though it's very, <laughs> the experience is very vivid, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of impact and understanding, some of the, some of the details, you know, yeah. have have faded. But you, but you have <laughs> had what you consider the same experience again through the practice of meditation. I have, but not not actually as dramatic right. as that. The aftermath was not as dramatic, or the the you actually think that you can detect a different character to the cessation experience. No, the, the I would say the aftermath, right, uh, is right. not as dramatic. Uh, so, so talk about the aftermath for a minute. <laughs> In once, I first I wonder. I mean, I I told my friend to stop reading because I knew he didn't understand what had just happened. <laughs> that he just destroyed your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's no point to going on because right. it's like, I, from my perspective, I had experienced what that teaching was trying to do. So why, yeah. why keep reading? Yeah. You know, it was redundant at that point. And so I just wandered off. Uh, and I remember... This was in a school, it was right next to the Bangkok Zoo. Mm. So I was just wandering around. I was wandering around in the zoo and <laughs> just in this place of, as, as you said, I mean, the way you expressed it, 
there, there was no separating out of myself separate from everything that was being seen or heard right it was all it was all one thing but but, you, but mm. presumably you can do that now in the context of this conversation with me but there's it's not it's quite a, the same no, thing no what, because what is it but talk about the positive characteristics of this aftermath experience that is positive not in in necessarily be, as being good or versus bad yeah. but positive in terms of something added to the flavor of, of experience that's not happening for yeah, you right I now. Think mostly again i'm not sure of this but my sense is that it was just the newness of right. that experience and so because it came so out of the blue and yeah. so unexpected and not as the result of a uh, systematic meditative progression right. so the, the the change was so dramatic so sudden so unexpected so without mental preparation it's a bit like through the looking glass yeah you know, all yeah. of a sudden you turned inside out yeah now it's just that that experience is just and the understanding is much more familiar to me right. so i think it does it just doesn't have the same dramatic interest right right do you think there's a a, a difference in just the in, in your stability in that experience so that in the immediate aftermath of cessation you were stabilized in that selfless yeah. awareness to a degree that is not normal in your it's hard life to, or no, it, it, it's a little hard to say because uh, and something kind of it must have there was it had a half-life right so it wore off this this transfigured consciousness yeah, wore off yeah. after over days yeah, or yeah yeah over days and um, then what then you then you really wanted to yeah, find out what the hell had happened yeah exactly and but that, this is just at the end of my peace corps stay so i was going home and i had no i mean i had no idea of what to do or how to integrate this but i i mean i tried talking to people about the fact that there's really no self mm -hmm. and the self is a construct of course people by, meaning <laughs> that your rabbi in the berkshires or well, well to my family when i got home right. even to friends before the friends in the peace corps uh -huh. before before i left this was just like a week or two before so there's this huge transition happening yeah you know finishing my time in thailand going back to the states obviously people had no way of relating yeah. to what i was talking about so when i went home and it it didn't take me long to realize that i wanted to pursue this understanding and actually just a little anecdote when i was home i thought i went up to a place called chapel house at colgate university it was just to go on a little retreat myself mm -hmm. but this is before i had done any intensive practice right but so i went up to this place beautiful place upstate new york and they had a copy of that text there mm -hmm. and so i got somebody to read me the text <laughs> again thinking oh maybe i can recreate this whole thing yeah uh and nothing happened right so i realized that <laughs> that wasn't the way right uh and so then i just became motivated to go back to asia uh -huh. uh this is still 1965? No, no, this is 67. Uh -huh. I, I went into the Peace Corps in 65, and this happened just in the you know, beginning months of 67. Uh -huh. 
So, so you were a part part of that wave of Westerners going to India, the yeah. slightly early part going to yeah. India to meet Eastern teachers of yeah. esoterica. So I was going to go back uh, to Thailand since this is where all this happened, but I stopped in India on the way. People had given me the names of different Indian teachers and gurus. Mm. So I went in India and I was just wandering around to some different ashrams. So Hindu ashrams and Both. Buddhist? And, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so you, at this point, you were not committed to Buddhism as the context for your study? I, th I think I was not so much consciously, but when I, w I went to this one Sikh ashram that teaches this, uh, what do you call the inner sound? Nod yoga? Something yeah, like that. So, yeah. okay. so I went there and he was a very powerful, big ashram in the Punjab. Right. Uh, I've got tinnitus now. I could be a master of Nod well, yoga. Yeah. <laughs> I could take <laughs> Well, the sound that is unignorable. <laughs> it, he was very, very impressive, very powerful, uh -huh. and everybody who went there was on the on the trajectory of wanting to get initiated into it. Right. So that all the all the pressure, the peer pressure, was to go for initiation. Mm. But there was just something in me, based on this experience, that said, "This is not my path." So I went for a personal interview. With the mm -hmm. master and he was he was uh, he wasn't trying to convince me or anything i said i said to him just doesn't feel the right path for me i think i'll go back to thailand and he said i think you should stay in india mm -hmm. but not necessarily with him no not with yeah. him he wasn't so as it turned out that proved to be a very prescient right. remark yeah whether <laughs> from my perspective <laughs> it's a pity you've been wearing a turban all these years <laughs> right <laughs> it would have been a very different very different path anyway i'm going back to the train station to go back to delhi to go to thailand again on the in the rickshaw on the way to the train station the thought pops into my mind well maybe you should go to bodh gaya which is the place the buddha was enlightened mm -hmm. I go to Bodh Gaya, and at this time there are not that many Westerners. In Bodh Gaya, there were very few. I go to this place called the Burmese Vihara, where the Westerners were staying. It was like the Burmese rest house for Burmese pilgrims. Mm. But Burma was closed at that time, so that no Burmese were coming. So the few Westerners, there were maybe five or six Westerners, they were staying there. I met some of them, they were a group of Danish people. Mm -hmm. They were studying meditation with this person named Anakarika Munindra, mm. who had just come back from nine years in Burma and was teaching Vipassana, or insight meditation. So he had just come back. He had started teaching in Bodh Gaya. So these Danish people said, you know, would you like to meet Munindraji? Mm. So I went to see him. He explained the Vipassana practice, and it was an immediate connection. It's exactly what I was looking for. But wasn't Vipassana what you had been given in Thailand? Not, not really. What I had been given in Thailand was much more just the preliminary being with the breath. Right. So it was more like a concentration practice in a way. Yeah. Uh, and it was very unintensive. You know, when I went to Manindra and he explained the practice and then I started doing it intensively, that's when I realized this is a good expression of what my experience was had been. Right. Well, f for um, our listeners who are uh, unaware of, uh, maybe unaware of uh, the details of Vipassana practice, can you do just like a two-minute guided meditation? Yeah. Just to get us there. 
after you drink that water. Yes, yes, yes. Crackling water bottles yes, yes. ruin our audio. <laughs> okay, so I go to Manindraji. Mm. He explains the basics of Vipassana practice, which is really simple. It's the sitting meditation part is sitting down, starting with attention on the breath and just feeling feeling the sensations, the experience of the breath, and being aware of moment to moment whatever arises, sensations in the body, thoughts, emotions. Um, so should we do a little yeah, guided do, meditation? Yeah, do, do, like, do like a minute or two. Just okay, so, okay. so uh, if as you're listening to this, you just take some comfortable posture, you know, sitting in a relaxed way, in Vipassana, generally we close our eyes, but can also be done with the eyes open. Uh, so sit, and you might begin by taking a few deep breaths, simply as a way of settling into the awareness of the body. Then let the breath come to its own natural rhythm. And simply be aware or feel the sensations of each breath as it comes into the body, as it leaves the body. It's not a breathing exercise, it's an exercise in awareness. And so we simply use the breath as a vehicle for being aware. As you feel the breath going in and out, you may become aware of sounds, background sounds or loud sounds. Then simply notice uh, hearing. Be aware of the experience of hearing, how the sound comes and goes. Then returning to the breath. You might begin to feel other sensations in the body pressure, of tightness, of tingling, of vibration. If any sensation becomes predominant, become aware of the sensation. Notice how it changes. When it's no longer predominant, again return to the breath. Be aware of any thoughts or images that appear in the mind as you're feeling the in-breath and out-breath. Thought may come and at first may carry you away, lost in the thought. But at a certain point you become aware that you're thinking. You might make a soft mental note, thinking, thinking, to highlight and emphasize the awareness of thought, rather than being lost in it. And notice what happens to the thought in the moment of awareness. Does it continue? Does it disappear? When the thought is no longer there, again return to the breath or bodily sensations. So in this way, we are just being mindful moment after moment 
of whatever is the predominant experience in the body, in the mind. And through that awareness we begin to see the changing nature of all these phenomena. Things are arising and passing away. And in the awareness of this process of change, the mind no longer clings. And the mind of non-clinging, of non-grasping, is really the essence of the Vipassana practice. Well, that's great. So, a few things to point out there. One is, that is the whole practice. In a very short span, you can give, more or less, the entire practice. There's no, I mean, there, there's fine, there's tweaking of the dials that you may want to emphasize for someone in the middle of a three-month retreat or given whatever they happen to be experiencing. But in seed form, the whole logic of the practice was just given. What's unique about Vipassana, and I think the reason why it has been adopted by so many clinicians and, and now scientists who are studying meditation is that, one, it doesn't require that you add anything strategically to your experience. You're not repeating a mantra. You're not visualizing something. You don't have to develop an interest in or sympathy for historical figures or imaginary, potentially imaginary figures, who, you know, deities in, 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 in Hinduism or the Tibetan Buddhist canon. And uh, so it really is just paying closer attention to whatever happens mm. to be happening in that moment in, in the mind and body. And the other very important feature of it is that it in principle doesn't exclude anything so this so you don't need a quiet room you don't need a a comfortable body in principle anything you notice is as good as any other object of meditation and that virtually every other practice doesn't can't can't meet those two tests so i think it's perfectly designed for export to a secular scientific yes. audience because yes. it because it, it stands to it's reason it's just life it's just life and and <laughs> and if you if you want to know something more about what it's like to be you and what what yeah. could could possibly be discovered through introspection it makes sense to pay attention exactly and this, all this is is paying attention yes. that when i first went met Manindraji in Bodhgaya when i went to meet him he said something that was so the common sense of it was so striking to me. It's really what what was the big hook for me. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. Hmm. And that was all. There was nothing to believe. There was nothing to join. It was yeah. just that, how else can we understand our minds except by observing? So the, yeah, the, the accessibility of it yeah. and the, the common sense of it was so striking to me. Of course, as we do the practice, you know, many, there are many, many dimensions of our experience that reveal themselves that previously we had not been aware of. Yeah. So it goes very deep into, with tremendous nuance, but the basic instruction is, is this simple. Yeah, it's, all, it's, it's always a matter of not being lost in thought about the experience. Mm-hmm noticing thought as thought mm-hmm. and noticing the character of experience with interest and without grasping at pleasant right. and right. pushing away the unpleasant right. exactly just simply yeah. always being aware of what's arising and i think uh, one thing that people get confused about is i mean obviously there's a, there's 
a vast amount that the brain is doing and that therefore the mind is doing that we're not aware of right. and that is not best discovered through introspection. I mean, so hence <laughs> the necessity of having whole branches of science named psychology and neuroscience and, and cognitive neuroscience and cognitive science and linguistics and everything else. I'm following the, the rules of English grammar more or less yeah. effortlessly to get to the end of the sentence. I have no idea how I'm doing that. Right. And when right. I fail to do that, I have no idea why I fail. And the best way to discover those details is not by me paying attention because it's simply not visible. The data are not there. But what mindfulness is, is a tool to be as aware as possible of the actual character of your subjective experience. Mm -hmm. It's not to say this is the best way to do neuroscience. Right. It's the best right. way to be aware of what it's like to be you in every moment. Yes. And and it's, it's in that context that you can discover whether or not this thing you call yourself exists the way you have always thought it does. Yeah. Um, and it's also, it's very pragmatic in another sense, because one of the things we discover through this simple introspection and observation is to see what patterns of thought and emotion uh, create suffering for mm -hmm. ourselves and others and how to be free of that suffering and that's really the bottom line of why to do it right you know it's a way of coming out of suffering and and we become much more expert in terms of understanding our own minds and our own conditioning uh, because we all have established habit patterns that are not helpful they're not conducive mm. to peace not conducive to freedom we need to learn about that. We need to we need to see how all of that's happening. So take me back to so now you're with Manindra in Bodh Gaya, and he's making a lot of sense and has given you a practice that seems very promising mm -hmm. in light of this mm -hmm. experience you had had in Thailand. What is your motivation at that point? Is your motivation a interest in the nature of the mind? Is it getting rid of suffering that you're finding no. intolerable? What what's driving? No, for, for me, for me interest was the key i didn't have any obvious suffering right you know i was i was just still very young i was 23 years old and uh, i was just incredibly interested at this point in the mind and exploring the implications and ramifications of what this experience was mm. and upon this further investigation i realized that buddhism really explained it all this, this was this was the most appropriate context for the exploration so had at that point had you gone and met other gurus apart from that one Sikh had you met Muktananda uh, or Anandamaima no, no, no I had gone up to the, the Himalayas to try to find some Tibetan hmm. teachers since it had been a Tibetan text right that, but it was in the middle of winter, and I <laughs> it was freezing cold, and the uh, Tibetans had all gone south, right, <laughs> so nobody right. was there. Uh -huh. uh, no, and so Manindra was really, aside from that one ashram I had gone to, mm -hmm. he was the first teacher I met, and I feel very fortunate because it was just exactly what I was looking for. Right. But you did do some practice in another tradition of Vipassana, because you, you sat Goenka retreat. That was after. Well, right? After, okay. You get to Bodh Gaya, you meet Manindra. How long did you stay in India the, at this point? That very first time I was uh, in India, I stayed for about six weeks or two mm -hmm. months, and then I was going back to the States. 
and when I when I started, I had no concentration. I mean, mm. big, so it's almost like I was practicing to catch up to the experience I had had, right? Because I hadn't done any of the mental development that, in the normal course of things, would have culminated in that, right? And so when I started to actually, so you you were, you were not a prodigy, not a, a meditational prodigy not, from the side of actually doing the practice, not at all. Yeah. In fact. I think quite the opposite. Well, so what's interesting is that but this breakthrough cessation experience, as, as a starting point, why wouldn't that have made you a prodigy? The the only the only prodigy aspect that I could discern, there was no doubt. Doubt about the path had been eliminated. Uh-huh. Because I I had this very clear understanding and realization of the selflessness of it all. But I saw also that there was still a lot more work to do. There was still a lot of conditioned habit patterns of mind that were still there. So even though I knew they were selfless, you know, I had that basic understanding. Still, and when you when you sat down to meditate with Manindra, you're spending virtually all your time lost in yeah, yeah. because you don't have concentration. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly, and, and enjoying it. I, was, yeah. I thought it's kind of a nice way to spend an hour. Right. Cross your legs and think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is basically what I did. But I knew I had found the path. The path made sense to me, hmm. even though that it was not easy. But I didn't have any doubt. I, I knew, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I went back to the states, worked for a little while, made a little more money, and just, you know, was anxious to get back to India and to pursue it. When I went back, I got inspired to do the meditation on loving kindness. Hmm. Meta. Meta. In, that's the Pali word. Um, I had just come to a realization that I felt that this was a quality that I could well develop in myself. Mm. You know, I feel a little lacking in myself, and I started lacking in the world. So I was very inspired. Can you just describe what that practice is? You don't need to do a yeah. guided yeah. meta practice. So the, the way meta is done, or one way it's done traditionally, is just to think of somebody you start with a benefactor, somebody for whom you have good feeling, loving feeling, and you visualize them and repeat certain phrases of loving kindness, of well wishing. Mm-hmm. You know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of uh, suffering. And it's, it really becomes a mantra of loving kindness, mm-hmm. you know, where you're repeating the phrases, directing it to the image. And then there's a progression going from a benefactor to a friend, to somebody who's neutral, to somebody who's difficult for you, and then to all beings. So it's a gradually expanding field of loving kindness. And unlike mindfulness, in this practice, there's a target mental state yes. you're trying to kindle and to hold yes. in the mind and to grow and deepen. And there's a very explicit goal yes. in terms of the, the mental state you're trying to produce. Yes. Yeah. And, and Actually, there there are two aspects to it. One is the development of the feeling of loving kindness, but it is also a concentration technique. And so what develops, it can also be used to develop concentration as well as the feeling of loving kindness. And for me, I so I did, I was doing this loving kindness meditation intensively also for about six weeks or two months. Mm. So this is all day, every day. Yeah. I'm just so you're on retreat now. I'm on retreat, yeah. 
And it was in doing that practice that for the first time, uh, my mind developed uh, so, some concentration. And it was, it was quite remarkable. I mean, it, it's a whole new inner space. And before, even though I had no doubt about the practice, and I was committed to doing it, it was really difficult. You know, it was, uh, so your it first, was work. So your first time you had had periods uh, that were periods of intensive practice on retreat doing Vipassana where you hadn't broken through? No. Or you, or you, so your first per period of retreat was doing Metta? No, the, f the first six weeks when I first went to Bodh Gaya, mm -hmm. I was doing Vipassana. Vipassana, but, but for like 10 hours a day or... Yeah. And still just feeling the effects of not having concentration. Right, right. right. No, I was continually trying to bring my mind back and be present. Right. It, was, it was hard work, but I, I, had no, I had no doubt about it. I wanted to do it. Right. But, so you, but you were a hard case because many, many yes, people do a 10-day or three-week yeah. retreat, Vipassana, for the first yeah. time. Yeah. And at some point in that retreat, yeah, really they, do experience yes. kind of effortless yeah, concentration. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, I didn't. And yeah. that's why for me now as a teacher, I have tremendous confidence in people being able to do it hmm. because I, if i could do it anybody could do it right. because my mind was so unconcentrated yeah. but the meta really that established my mind in a degree of concentration not fantastic but sufficient yeah and it changed everything because once the mind develops a certain level of concentration then the practice becomes much more effortless Right. You know, there's a momentum to the practice and it becomes much more enjoyable. And so doing that period of the loving kindness was, was really important for me in the whole trajectory. Mm. And then at a certain point I went back to Vipassana and then just proceeded to continue with Vipassana going through. So now how long the, did you stay in India this time? I was in India over a seven year period. Mm. And I was back and forth to the States maybe two times two or three times in that period for a few months at a time. Mm. So, so I was mostly in India. Mostly in India for about seven years. With yeah. Mostly in the, Bodh Gaya. Uh, Bodh Gaya during the winter months up in, we would go to the mountains in the summer months. Dalhousie? Yeah, yeah, Dalhousie is very, very hot uh -huh. in the plains in the summer. So um, and during this period, so you're basically in India for seven years. And then now this is the period where a real influx of Westerners yeah. is, is now noticeable. You've got Ramdas and and yeah. and the whole party coming yeah. through Bogaya and doing Goenka retreats. Yeah. And yeah. So did you? So you 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 study with Goenka as well during that period? I did. It's starting in 1970. I started doing Goenka retreats, which was also very powerful. It was a very powerful technique. But I I had a I had a major uh, obstacle. So when I first started doing Goenka, this, which is a body scanning. So the, uh, the difference being you don't focus on the breath as a primary point, point of contact. You actually very strategically move through the body, noticing sensation from your toes to your head and back again. Right. They, he, does, he does emphasize using the breath for the first few days of a 10-day retreat. For concentration. For concentration. Right. And then it opens up to the body scan. Right. So when I first started doing that, I already been with Menindra for a few years. Uh, my body, it, it totally opened up, it just became a body of light, mm. you know, and it's wonderful. It was just free right. flow of energy and it was... Uh, well, unpack that, that, that phrase can sound a little spooky, body of light. What, what do you mean by body of light? 
it's it's you weren't from, literally glowing <laughs> it, from the inside the it felt like it uh but usually we experience the body as somewhat dense and solid but through this uh, intensive body scanning up and down we begin to experience the body as as a an energy field right meaning just a a field of flowing sensations with no solidity any place mm -hmm. and so it's just this free flow of energy that's very it's very enjoyable uh, and so i got into that and but just spent hours and hours and hours mm. in that very effortless then i had to go back to the states maybe i'd run out of money or mm. went back for a couple of months when i came back to india my i had lost my body of light mm -hmm. and it had become like a body of twisted steel right, right. and i could not recreate that experience uh -huh. and for two years i was struggling to get that back S struggling in the context of meditation uh, uh, with goenka or yeah. with menindra no with goenka oh, so, you, so you spent two years doing the goenka style oh more i spent uh, close to four years uh-huh Three, three and a half years right. doing that style. So it had started off gloriously, right? And then it had crashed. But of course, mindful—the point of the practice is not to recreate uh, any specific body correct, manifestation. But, but but it was too seductive. It was too seductive, and uh, yeah, I was just doing it wrong, right? But and it, did I didn't give get, you instructions? No, not no. really. I was because there was a lot of emphasis in that tradition to get that free flow. Uh -huh. So that was, in a way, the goal. Right. And so it was, it was exceedingly frustrating. Yeah. It was the worst two years of my practice. Right. Uh, and it took me, it took me two years to realize that it's not about getting something back, mm. but to be with how things are. So finally, <laughs> it took a long, long time finally my mind let go of that fixation mm -hmm. and just relaxed into how things were and then there started to be movement again it never it never got back to how it was right but it didn't matter you know that yeah. there was a different kind of different kind of flow uh, so that was a, that was its own learning yeah you know in terms of yeah. understanding what the practice really is about and that, that, that's a point of interest to me, which we've argued about in other contexts. But it's interesting the w the way in which the logic of a practice, w explicit or implicit, can lead you to practice in a way that is just oh, yeah. not yeah. profitable. There, there's a there's a very classic uh, progression in what are called the stages of insight. So there's a very classic unfolding of different experiences where people at a certain stage have experiences of tremendous rapture and clarity and concentration and all the things that we're practicing to develop at this particular stage they're called corruptions of insight mm. because the, the tendency is for almost everybody in one way or another to get attached to them it's yeah. such a remarkable shift from anything that's happened before that when you're experiencing that, 
it just feels you've arrived. Yeah, this and is, it has this... the flavor of enlightenment. Yeah. It seems like yeah. this is a, this is why I was practicing exactly. in the first place. I want to feel this way. Exactly, yeah. and it's called pseudo nirvana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it takes some real guidance at that point to simply be mindful of those states as as other changing conditions, and not to be attached to it. Yeah. And the very next stage of insight is called seeing what is the path and what is not the path. Yeah. And that's an important juncture because until that point, we think that having those experiences is the path. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to really go through that and and see that it's not the path, that that's just experiences along the way, and that the whole path is always about letting go. It's not about holding on. Yeah. And whatever is fundamental to the nature of mind has to be discoverable in the context of whatever experience happens to be present. If the thing you're taking to be significant yeah is there by virtue of having the some contingent yeah, yeah. contingent conditions in place, yeah. then obviously it's vulnerable to, yes, exactly. to change. Exactly. Yeah. I, I like to say in the teaching, in guiding people through situations like this, it, if freedom is dependent on conditions, it's not freedom. You know? Yeah. Just take me back to that period so that now you're you're inboard guy, you've been there for years. Now you're just practicing in no. a Buddhist context. You're not yeah. going to meet no. Neem Karoli Baba no, no, or no. Ananda Maimara. Because no, no. the whole sp yeah. spiritual circus is happening around you. Yeah, you yeah. Everything that you can read about in Ram Dass's yeah, yeah, books. Yeah. Um, I had no interest. I was so I was so in alignment with this path. Mm. It was so exactly... It felt so right for me. I really had no interest in doing anything else except deepening my experience and over the years there is an unfolding path of experience and go through all kinds of different different experiences all of which are to be let go of mm. uh, but it was completely fascinating it was like this journey into the mind the exploration of the mind and the, the very real feeling that as vast as things are looking out into space, that same vastness is when you look in the mm -hmm. inner space. And so it was tremendously compelling. It, had you had that cessation experience again through the practice of Vipassana under Manindra Goenka in those years? In no. India? So seven years in India practicing Vipassana, you still hadn't gotten back to that same experience? No. I'm trying to remember now. So, mm. um, no, it it got back to the quality of mind, or the yeah, the openness of mind that was the fruit of that experience. Right, right. Uh, but not that, not that. Not the not the precipitating yeah. cessation yeah. experience. Yeah. So then, wh when did that come? When did you? When so then in '84. Uh, he met our Burmese teacher, Saida Upandita, mm. and he's, he's a very demanding teacher, you know, and very strict. And so there was a whole, a whole movement of, again, doing intensive practice, but with tremendous intensity. Yeah, really uh, bearing down on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it was in practicing with him. In that first 84 course, or 
not in the 84 course, but then in 85 went to Burma mm. and sat with him there when I was practicing with Deepama. Mm -hmm. There were some experiences, not with the same impact, but which she thought were of that depth. And that's when I realized, that's when I came to who knows, because it didn't seem to me to be that. Right, right. But <laughs> here's this great teacher saying so. Yeah. And so in the course of my history, I've had experiences where I thought something significant had happened and the teachers didn't, where I thought it wasn't so significant and the teachers did. Yeah. yeah. And so it... Well, clearly, it, you, I would imagine you come down on the side of your perceived significance has to trump their outside view of your mental development. Well, in both cases, no, because there are so many different kinds of spiritual experiences. Mm. But presumably, uh, if, you, if you have one that has a profound effect on you going forward, right. it, it's, it's, it, the measure of its significance is its is, profound effect. It's lasting profound effect. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, but sometimes in the moment you can think something is very profound, and I've had this. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the maps are always super clear. Right. The unfolding experience for different individuals sometimes is, but sometimes isn't. I've come to a sense of just staying open to the different possibilities of what something means yeah. without rushing to conclusions. <clears throat> Isn't that also synonymous with being open to the possibility that the maps are not accurate? Either not or accurate or not complete. Yeah. Every map of necessity is limited. It's a map, it's concepts. Yeah. You know, trying to describe experience, and experience is always more varied right. than the map and conditioned by so many different things. I guess my mind has just become much more relaxed with regard to conclusions. Yeah. You know, and the basic framework for me at this point is with regard to the whole range of spiritual experiences, the measure of its importance is whether the defilements are lessened and perhaps uprooted right. or not. We've begun using a few terms that will undoubtedly be unfamiliar to most of our audience. One is Dzogchen. We've, you've already defined Vipassana, but maybe just so it's clear, define Vipassana as a tradition. And I'll say something about Dzogchen and then people will have their bearings. Mm -hmm. Vipassana is a uh, Pali word, an ancient uh, Indian dialect that it said the Buddha spoke. It really means insight meditation. And that particular kind of meditation is practiced mostly in Southeast Asia, in what's known as the Theravada Buddhist tradition, the tradition of Buddhism that's practiced in uh, Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand. So it really refers to this particular kind of meditation that develops the four foundations or the four ways of establishing mindfulness. Mm. Uh, so it's very much embedded in this Theravada tradition of Southeast Asia. And, and the, the primary technique is 
cultivating this quality of attention called mindfulness, the purpose of which is to see the three characteristics of phenomenon. So maybe just right. So, so the point of developing mindfulness or the purpose it serves is in order to see clearly in terms of the development of wisdom, seeing uh, with more and more clarity, the impermanence of everything that arises, whatever arises is also going to pass. And in Vipassana, we begin to see this flow of impermanence on more and more microscopic levels. As the as the mind gets more refined, concentration stronger, we're really in the momentary flow of phenomena. And as a result of that, we begin to see the what is called the unsatisfying nature of phenomena, the characteristic of things being ultimately unsatisfying. And that's what we should perhaps put a footnote there that this term that you're translating as, as unsatisfying or unsatisfactory is often translated as suffering. And hence the, the idea that the Buddha said life is suffering. Right. You might just wax uh, <laughs> uh, for a moment on that topic. Yeah, I think that the Pali word is dukkha, and it is the central word of the Four Noble Truths of the Buddhist teachings. The truth of dukkha, the cause of it, the end of it, and the way to the end. As you mentioned, dukkha is often translated as suffering but it's not a very accurate translation because, as we know, there are many things in life that are pleasant and enjoyable and we don't experience as suffering. The deeper meaning of the word dukkha is that things ultimately are unsatisfying or unreliable precisely because they're impermanent. Mm. Some of these things are pleasant, some are unpleasant, but all are equally dukkha in the sense of not capable of giving us a lasting satisfaction. In that way of understanding it, it becomes much more uh, universal. We can begin to encompass all of our experience in this truth of dukkha, which is very related to the truth of impermanence. Mm. And the third characteristic, which is illuminated through Vipassana, is the selfless nature of phenomena, that this flow of experience doesn't belong to anyone. There's no there's no self behind it to whom it's happening. That what we are is this flow of change. And so the mindfulness is really in the service of developing this wisdom. And the wisdom is in the service of liberation. Mm. Because when we see the three characteristics, then the mind doesn't hold on, it doesn't grasp. And in the freedom from grasping, the mind, the mind is freed. And so when you say liberation, mm or freedom, what is one liberated from and what is one free of? Ultimately, what we're freeing the mind from are various afflictive emotions, which the Buddha condensed into three roots, mm. three unwholesome roots of greed and hatred and delusion, out of which all the others come. Right. And that's really what we're freeing the mind from. Right. Freeing it from greed, freeing it from hatred, freeing it from delusion. Okay. Well, so I guess the other term that is going to come up, perhaps we've mentioned it already, I'm, I'm raising it as a counterpoint to Vipassana practice. It's the uh, teachings of Dzogchen in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There's considerable similarity between Vipassana and Dzogchen in the sense that you are paying attention very closely to your experience in the present moment and not adding anything strategically to it. But the thing that's unique about Dzogchen as a path of practice is that it begins not with a technique, although it, it can begin with many preliminary practices that, that anyone can adopt, but it really only begins with an insight into the nature of awareness, into the selfless 
often called non-dual nature of awareness. And this is generally precipitated by a dialogue with a Dzogchen master, a Dzogchen teacher, who really in a, in a hands-on way guides you into having this insight into the nature of consciousness. The clearest point of contact to the Vipassana teachings is, is that it's essentially a facilitated insight into the selflessness of awareness. Uh, and then one's mindfulness as a practice is mindfulness simply of that uh, experience of selflessness. And Joseph and I will talk about how I view the difference between those two paths of practice and, and, the, and the significance uh, or lack thereof of that difference. But these are the, the terms you want to understand. And I spell this out more clearly in my book, Waking Up, if any of this gets too confusing. Well, let's, let's start with my experience of doing Vipassana, because I, I, as you know, I spent several years and at least one year on retreat practicing this Burmese style of Vipassana in a very pure way. Without We hadn't discovered Dzogchen teaching yet, and I didn't really have another model of how to practice. As many people do in the practice of mindfulness, I started, uh, as virtually everyone does, uh, with the possible exception of yourself, I started with a very clear sense of being a self, being a subject who is now adopting this practice for reasons of uh, both intellectual interest and wanting to overcome the kinds of suffering that all selves are prone to. So I, so I, I felt like I was the subject of my experience, and now I'm given this practice, which as you gave us about an hour ago, starts with just strategically paying attention to all of one's sensory experience. So you start with the breath and then sensations in the body, and the goal is to pay attention clearly enough so as to have certain kinds of insights. The, the, the one uh, most interesting insight that is advertised is to discover that the self is an illusion, that you're not, you don't, you, you don't have this self that you thought you had. Uh, and with that comes a, a kind of uh, relief from uh, all the problems uh, selves are, are heir to. But the issue is that you can practice, you can seem to practice mindfulness as a, a strategy, as a self, paying strategic attention to experience, and in many cases go for weeks and months and years only in a very haphazard way experiencing this loss of self. Frankly, it seems to me that that can happen even if one has had this, or seems to have had this zero experience where you've, you've gone all the way through the progress of insight, the lights go out, you come back, you have this, you no longer have a view of self, say, you no longer have a belief in self, but one's mindfulness thereafter is not necessarily synonymous with feeling free of self. With the Dzogchen teaching, it begins with not a practice, it begins with this insight into the selflessness of consciousness. And unless you've had unless you can have that insight, you actually can't do the practice. There's not a there's not something to pay attention to apart from the selflessness of consciousness. And once you've had that insight, then every moment of practice is synonymous with selflessness. So my question to you is is this is the mindfulness that most people experience, this dualistic mindfulness, the strategy of paying attention not actually mindfulness? Is it just a way of orienting to the true mindfulness that will arise when you can actually see that in the act of seeing, there's just pure seeing, there's no seer and see and things seen? So yeah, that's the question. Is it is what most people most of the time call mindfulness not actually the real thing, just a way of getting people to 
hopefully discover the real thing. <laughs> okay, this, this question uh, just opens up a whole big discussion of various things. So first to say that in the beginning of practice, whether it's Ochen or Vipassana, even though we use those two terms, Zotin and Vipassana, to describe the general orientation of practice, just as you pointed out with Zotin, but it's also true of Vipassana, the, for most people, the beginning practices are not actually doing Zotin or Vipassana. Hmm. It, it's kind of either approximating Zotin approximating some recognition of the nature of mind, the, the selfless nature, but people not, not have not necessarily actually experienced it, but they're, they're in the vicinity. Mm -hmm. And so the practice is one of just again and again, trying to come to it. And at a certain moment, people have that actual realization. As you say, that's when Dzogchen really begins. Mm -hmm. In Vipassana, the beginning stages really are not Vipassana, even though that's the term we use for it. Yeah. it the beginning stages really are the development. Uh, it's basically a samatha, a concentration practice. It's using mindfulness to just connect and be present moment after moment to build up a certain level of concentration Vipassana starts happening, real Vipassana starts yeah. happening uh, when there's enough momentum of both mindfulness and concentration so that first the practice starts happening by itself yeah. and so there's not the sense of someone making an effort to do it. It's rolling along by itself and the understanding in that, in that, rolling along by itself mode, mm. uh, the impermanence of things arising and passing is very clear. Right. So that's really the beginning of Vipassana. So right. that, that's just a little background to the okay. beginning stages of both practices. Right, Ex except that description of the beginning, to my ear, articulates a difference between the two paths that it's hard to, hard to yeah. reconcile. I mean, no, no, that... Okay. I'll be getting to that. Okay. I, I just wanted to point out that that the terms we use to describe the practice of Vipassana and Dzogchen right. in both cases have a preliminary... Uh, Except in, in the case of Dzogchen, there's no confusion about when the practice starts. So, for instance, I, if, if you're yeah. agreeing with me about, or, or if you're um, suggesting that the true mindfulness only starts when... Not true mindfulness, true Vipassana. So mindfulness is is the technique. Vipassana is the is the the insight yeah. born of the technique. Yes. What we have is a culture of meditators now. I mean, mindfulness mm. is incredibly well subscribed as a as a method of meditation. Many people think they're practicing mindfulness slash vipassana. No, but in, in the only way that in the way that it is there. To yeah, be but practiced. that that's equating those two terms. Which, and, it, which, it, which is which is commonly it, done. it is common, but that's 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 a in an inaccurate and perhaps popular understanding, and that's why I'm making the point that you can be practicing mindfulness 
And it's only at a certain stage of that that it becomes Vipassana. Yes. Even though we use the term Vipassana. Okay, so but mm-hmm. so but this this gets to the to the, the heart of my question. So you're someone who has practiced mindfulness to the point of Vipassana. So you mm. you now you're play, you're playing the real game. Okay. Uh, my question about the character of one's mindfulness at that point. Yeah. Is no, I, okay. I, I want to get to that. To that, I just yeah. wanted to set the that framework of understanding the terminology. Okay. So, at the point where mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness, actually becomes vipassana practice, mm-hmm. an inside practice, there is a very important stage of insight, which, very interestingly, the term is similar to a zochen term. And for myself, it's been an interesting exploration. Is it in some way related? Are the two experiences related or not? Mm. But in Vipassana, the stage of insight is called purification of view. Mm-hmm. And in Dzogchen, you know, as you know, they talk a lot about the view and clarifying the view. Mm. So in the Vipassana, in this particular stage of insight, purification of view, there is enough momentum of mindfulness and concentration so that the whole process is running along by itself. Right. And there is the clear seeing, the clear understanding that in every moment, all that's happening is a pairwise progression of knowing an object. Mm-hmm. And that's all. There's just there's knowing of a knowing of a sight, a sound, a smell. And that it's seen very clearly that the knowing that's arising in this pairwise progression mm-hmm. is also conditioned and impermanent. Right. And so there is a profound and still beginning understanding of the selfless nature of knowing, of consciousness. Right. And so from that, and this is not a moment, this is... At this stage, it's a flow. It's a flow experience. of yes. that experience, and it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's from that's familiar to me from my vipassana practice. Yeah. The difference, however, is that you're still talking about a way of seeing that is contingent upon momentum. It's contingent upon having built up the energy of practice on retreat, so that you've got enough concentration and you can really just yes, it's, it's, it's effortless, as you say, yeah. and you've you are then in some sense being pushed from behind by all of the work you've yes, recently yes. put in. What's different about the insight into selflessness born of Dzogchen practice, or which, which is synonymous with Dzogchen practice, is that it's not, it's not contingent upon anything. Yeah, no, you need no momentum. I, you know, we just, we, it's morning here, we just got up, I haven't had enough coffee, <laughs> I've got no momentum, we're just talking. But I, but the thing that, that is synonymous uh, with, uh, with with the insight yes. that is ocean practice is available in this instance. Yes, yes, except... And, and so, so, so right. my, but my question yeah. to you is, is that really what mindfulness is right. in your view of Vipassana? Yes. <laughs> this, I'm going to tie you down to something. No, no, this, <laughs> this whole conversation touches on a lot of interesting questions and points. So even though 
the way you describe, and I've had the same experience in the Zochen practice, mm. that it's not dependent on momentum. But from my perspective, at least at the moment, the emphasis in Zochen is stabilizing the recognition. Yes. To me, <laughs> I think I think that stabilization is really another word for momentum. Right. Right. You know, well, I, I would I would agree with you uh, there. I, I think that's the way you would stabilize it is to have momentum. Yes. So, so whether they're truly synonymous or momentum, yes. I mean, you need concentration and you need a continuity yes. of mindfulness. Yeah. But the, but the crucial difference from my point of view is it, it seems as, as ha, having mm. practiced both and having had experiences of Vipassana momentum and Vipassana effortlessness uh, on retreat, I came away from that experience and as I think many, if not most Vipassana yogis do, feeling that absolutely clear insight into selflessness is contingent upon all of that machinery of effort and, and 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 momentum that one can only have on retreat. So unless you've been unless you've had enough concentration uh, over the course of a day and have been meditating for hours and hours, there's not a hell of a lot to notice in your workaday mindfulness that is truly profound or truly synonymous well, with the with the mind of, of uh, enlightenment. Well, I have I just have some questions about that from two sides. From the Zochen side, even though the recognition is available in any moment, mm -hmm. without the stability, which comes from a momentum, right. my experience, both in doing the practice and in observing people, mm -hmm. is that likewise, the moments of recognition are quite few and far between because of the habit of mind right. of being distracted. Yeah. And so even though it's always available in the moment, mm. in fact, to, to manifest that understanding takes momentum. Also, it takes the buildup. Well, it, it depends on what you mean by manifest, because if you mean manifest the outward signs of a totally transformed personality no, that no, is no. Attra attractive to others. No, 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 no. Okay. That's so, not what I so, mean. So then the question is, what counts as a breakthrough into uh, the wisdom of emptiness or the wisdom of self selflessness that makes a difference to the person. I mean, what, what, what is, I would what say is, how, how often, so from the Zochen perspective, how, how often one is recognizing it. Yes. But, so, but let's, hmm. let's say in, in both cases, it's mindfulness. In both cases, it's noticing you've been lost in thought and then what you then notice subsequent to noticing the thought disappear. So what, what can you do? This is, this is true of every, type of meditation practice is you're either lost in thought or you're noticing what you should be noticing. And in, you know, mantra practice, you're supposed to be noticing the mm. sound of your mantra. In visualization practice, you're supposed to be noticing the thing you're visualizing. In loving kindness practice, you're supposed to be in that moment reasserting 
the, the well wishing to your object of metta and and feeling the feeling of, of loving kindness uh, in mindfulness practice it seems to I would guess 99% of yogis and it certainly seemed to me for a very long time that what one the alternative to the unenlightened for the unenlightened yogi is to notice phenomenon there's nothing to notice but the evidence of your own unenlightenment in that moment. Yeah, you're you're, no, you're yeah, noticing. Yeah. You're noticing. No, wait, here, wait. Here, wait. I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you redeem, redeem your, your path, your path of practice, and your life's work in a moment. But just let me let me fully disparage you. The the difference is with Zochen, yeah. The only thing you're supposed to notice, and the thing which is is the true taste of the, your mindfulness at that moment, is that there one that there is no self-center to whatever the experience happens to be and two that the experience no matter how painful really i mean it could be an experience of nausea it could be experience of anger whatever it is does not change consciousness I mean, so consciousness actually isn't harmed by whatever crappy experience you were just having dualistically a moment ago before you were mindful the moment you actually pay attention there's just consciousness and the energy of its expression. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, in that moment, anger and joy are equalized. And so the, the, the suffering component to which mindfulness would be a remedy uh, is also canceled. <laughs> so there's there's no one to suffer. And there, in fact, in some sense, no suffering. It's not to say that the, the unpleasant sensation has to disappear right. in that moment, yes, yes, yes. but it doesn't count in yeah, the same yeah. way it did a moment ago. So my question to you is, and you can take as long as you want trying to, to, to hem and haw and get to the answer, is that really what mindfulness just is? And most people take a very long time to discover it. <laughs> what you just described in terms of the equalizing of experience mm. through the Zochen recognition, you could have been describing the function of mindfulness. Because, for example, when one is mindful of anything unpleasant, mm. whether it's an unpleasant emotion, an unpleasant physical sensation, in that moment, the mind is not affected and is not reactive. It is in that place of simple awareness of that. And so, that, in the way you described it, I could have been describing the experience of mindfulness of those of those conditions. Right. Well, I, let, let's just stay on this point. This is a very important point. So, it is true to say, from your perspective, that if you are being mindful of sadness, say, mm -hmm. and in that moment sadness is still a problem, that's not Correct. mindfulness. So, so but, but, mindfulness contains its own equanimity. You, you, you have to, you, to, to if you're going to spend two seconds of truly being mindful, those are going to be two seconds of relief absolutely. from the suffering. Absolutely. Okay. Now that so so that but that's I think that's poorly understood, and there are many many people who practice mindfulness and are not aware of that kind of internal standard where it's, it's the, the relief may be eventual they may feel a little bit better but there's there's a subtle mm. corruption that they're practicing mindfulness one in order to change the experience to get that, rid of the sadness say. then it's not uh, that's what i call i mean i talk a lot about this in the yep. teaching i call that in order to mind right. when, when we're watching 
or being with something in order for something to happen, in yeah. order to make it go away, in order to have it strengthen or whatever. The in order to mind is not mindfulness. Right. right. That that's just a kind of grasping, you right. know, and it's desire and aversion. Uh, so as long as there's as long as there's desire and aversion in the mind relative to the experience, it's not mindfulness. Right. Mindful. Your description, I resonated completely with that as, as mindfulness. As mindfulness. Right. Except, except the, the cru a crucial feature of my description and, and my experience mm. is that the non-dual okay, so side want, of it is yes the magic. So piece. I want to get I want to get right. to this. So this um, um, I haven't expressed this before in this particular way. So okay. I'm gonna we'll see we'll see how it comes out. Okay. One of the things that's not emphasized a lot in vipassana, although I'm beginning to more and more because it's actually in the teachings, mm. but in the way it's been taught, it hasn't been emphasized. In those times when one is experiencing the impermanence or the dukkha, mm. the unsatisfying nature or the selflessness. We can be emphasizing two different aspects of it. We, we can be emphasizing the seeing of the impermanence, you know, that mm. things are arising and passing. And so that's still object oriented, right? Or the the selflessness of it, selflessness of the flow of phenomena. Yeah, not, of the flow of phenomena, the, and including yeah. uh, and including consciousness. But but the phenomena will be more predominant. Right. It's very interesting, and I've been working with this more and more now. It's equally possible to pay attention to the nature or the quality of the mind at those times when it's seeing impermanence. And there's a, there's a very, uh, there's a teaching in the Pali text. It's in seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, and it's, it's expressed in a few different ways. In seeing impermanence, the mind becomes disenchanted. Mm becomes disenchanted from the grasping. Mm. In the disenchantment, it becomes dispassionate. Mm. In the dispassion, it lets go. In the letting go, there's freedom. So in that sequence, it starts with the awareness of the objects being impermanent, mm. but it turns the attention back to the quality of the mind as it's seeing the impermanence. And that's where that's not emphasized so much or hasn't been. But I'm not even hearing it emphasized in the litany you just gave. And this has always been a, a mm. gripe of mine that the anatta, the selflessness that, that one realizes in Vipassana, has always seemed to me to be by virtue of anicca, impermanence. So that it's, it's because everything is changing that one extrapolates, not by thinking about it, but but that one notices that there's absolutely nothing that could be a self because there's this well, just this ungoverned right. flow. Right. But the selflessness of Dzogchen has nothing to do with impermanence. It has to do with seeing, it's, it has to do with the, the, the felt center that was yourself drop out of consciousness. 
So that the yes. consciousness is free of that. And so you, you might not be noticing change with any clarity at all, and yet there's but no center. I, no, I, yeah, but I, I think that so, so one can one can come to the ex, one can come to the recognition and experience of selflessness in different ways, and I don't really see that it makes any difference because well, in one way or another, whether you're looking at the nature of mind itself and recognizing selfless nature, or because all, because phenomena all phenomena are always changing. This is not. This doesn't take any. This doesn't take a particular momentum to see. Mm. If the mind is, if the mind just tunes in to the changing nature, that's always there. It's always present. Right. So that's another way of. It's another doorway into selflessness. This is a doorway that doesn't seem to be. Not only not emphasized, but not not even acknowledged in the Vipassana tradition, a, a direct direct mindfulness of selflessness well, I'll t I'll, that, that has nothing to do yeah. with looking at it. Well, at I, I wouldn't say that because for some people, their understanding, and, and these are people with the strong wisdom factor of mind, mm. the selfless aspect will be what's most important. For other people, it is the, the impermanence that's going to be most important. The, the function of both is the mind that's not grasping. That, mm. So that's the point of it all. And so I don't see that it matters very much which of the characteristics uh, one sees as predominant. And so many of this, for example, with Munindraji, for example, he very much emphasized the empty nature of phenomena. Mm. You know, and so, and I think that's why I resonated so much because that, that suited my own, my mm. own development and experience. Saito Upandita emphasized the dukkha aspect, which accomplished or resulted in the letting go, you know, and not holding on. There's just one other point I wanted to get to, and mm. I don't know if it's still in sequence enough to, to make the connection. One of the reasons the recognition of that selfless, empty quality of mind may not be emphasized in the Vipassana tradition as much as it is in the Dzogchen tradition, mm. right from the beginning, is that it goes back to this notion of certain experiences uprooting the view of self. And I think for some teachers, it's that experience of having the defilements be uprooted, which is the main focus of their teaching. And so the experiences along the way, they're not necessarily emphasized because, because the emphasis with these teachers is to accomplish that uprooting. So they may not be pointing out all along the way, oh, look, you know, really, really... If, if continuity of mindfulness is the only tool one needs to travel mm -hmm. the, the path toward mm -hmm. these various landmarks, mm 
mm. whether they're as significant as, as mm. one thinks or not. The, if you're going to get practice in the, in, in, uh, under the model of Burmese Vipassana, you just get the mindfulness rolling along and, and that's what you need to do. If mindfulness of anatta, selflessness, is just as good an object of mindfulness as any other sort of mindfulness, it's not a it's not not a choice between the two paths. You could be mindful. You could you could you could recognize that there's no self very mm. early on, be mindful of that centerless, open nature of consciousness, and have that be your continuity of mindfulness. And presumably, that would be all you would need to yeah, yeah. have these subsequent experiences. If in fact they are there. No, to, that, no, that's at. true. But but yeah. as I said, depending on a person. The the, well, well, let's not be so quick there. Is, uh, is there any reason to think that that might not be true? Is it possible in your mind that a certain style of mindfulness, I mean, like a cer certain base of mindfulness, uh, certain sensory objects as opposed to other objects, is better for having these zero experiences of, of cessation? I, no, I, I think it, it, it's very individual. You know, dep depending on the particular factors which are strong in a person, one or another salient features of phenomena mm. will be the most effective path. So for someone who is predisposed to tuning into impermanence or tuning into dukkha, tuning mm. into suffering, to try to uh, force them into the into the anatta category, you know, as being kind of the sole or only or best way mm. of coming to freedom from grasping, freedom from clinging, th that that may that may not be the most effective path for them. But see, the thing is, that in my view, the difference is, if we're talking about mm. the suffering and the end of suffering, the difference is so extraordinary. I mean, just to take it, to walk you back to part of your story that you told when you were practicing with Goenka and were doing the body scanning and had initially had this experience of, of mm. you know, sublime body of light, mm. no pain, and then came back mm. and you had the, the body of twisted steel and were trying to get back into the practice and, and literally couldn't continue with that practice because it was so frustrating. It, it sounded like that was your experience. And that was for two years fraught with the effort of trying to be mindful of a, a, a sphere of phenomenon that was just, in some sense, a condition of, of suffering. I mean, you, you could have said you were being mindful of dukkha in that in that situation, but you were having a very frustrated time as a yogi. Because looking. I wasn't being mindful. Okay, so, so, so there's two things to say about that. One, that's not the true mindfulness. Not at you all. Had, you had an agenda. Completely. Right? I had a strong agenda. Right. But... The fact that you had that agenda was understandable given the way the teaching was framed. In my view, you would have to... Yes. It's very hard not to have that agenda. And that's a, that's a liability of that style of practice. And I think that liability is... There, there's a liability on the other side, on the Dzogchen side, which we can talk about, which we haven't talked about at all, really. But the, the liability of the goal-oriented momentum model of get as much mindfulness you as you can on on whatever you can notice is that there's a sense that you have to that, that freedom is elsewhere that you're kind of you're, you're, you're trying to get you schlep up to the top of the mountain and you are at the bottom yeah and, and 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 all you can notice is the fact that you are 
somewhere near the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. And you got and you have to you have to keep working on this project. The difference between that and being able to just cut through to selflessness and really drop the, drop any obvious effort. I mean, that's that's the thing. You can be the question is when does it become effortless? Does it have to become effortless by virtue of momentum and all the, the practice takes on its a life of its own and you're just noticing effortlessly or can you notice that every true instant of of awareness is I mean, this is why in, in in Dzogchen they talk about practicing the goal as the path <laughs> in my experience that's not false advertising because even if you if, even if you're going to only get a get a second of mindfulness in in every hour <laughs> there's a difference between that second obviously being the goal or, or the yeah, yeah. second being a strategy to 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 reach some goal that is on the other side of this body of twisted iron. I, I really don't see the importance. Of no, no. I, as you say, each, each each tradition has, I see, its own strengths and its own potential pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And and each tradition, it becomes obvious when one has practiced and fallen into the pitfalls. Mm -hmm. uh, what they are in the vipassana practice the danger is that as i fell into you know really practicing with an agenda i think that's at that point i was not getting proper guidance mm. but i think when i finally came to an acceptance of just what was happening but but it's a it's a little subtler than that, and a little more insidious. Because proper what is proper guidance when the view is you really do need to get to the top of the mountain. So you, you you need so you're not at the top of the mountain right now. So you you haven't had the cessation experience. But that's a, that's no different than saying you need to get to stability. It it but it is different because <laughs> in each moment in which so in this moment I could say how do you know you're not stable? Right. No, but but. And, and and for that moment, the, the moment of mindfulness that that is going to precipitate could be a moment of freedom, but it's not the same thing as cessation. It's not the same thing because you know you're not, you know the lights are still on. You haven't gotten to, you have a goal. You, you have a goal. No, you, but you, there's a difference between, there's, there's, there's so many different aspects of this. Is why yeah. it makes the conversation, because I, I want to hit many different this points. Is, this, is, this is dharmic whack-a-mole. <laughs> First, just kind of to step back, mm. kind of looking at the Dzogchen tradition, which obviously, you know, I practice and, and has had a hugely beneficial. I've, mm. I've learned a lot from the practice and incorporated yeah. a lot into Vipassana. So I'm, I'm not at all kind of... You're not hostile to... to not, not, not only not hostile, I mean, it's like I'm... Mr. Wondorma. Right. <laughs> but when you look at the great Zochen masters, they have done years of preliminary practices yeah, and supportive yeah, yeah. practices and oh, yeah. 20 years in a cave. Yeah. So it's not that... It's no, not that... No, no, no. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that, that retreat is unnecessary. And, and so before we... Before, uh, to, to spare you some, right. some of the pain of, of having to spell that all out, one of the obvious pitfalls of emphasizing non-duality and emphasizing that there's nowhere to go and nothing to get to and there's no goal is that per a person can be left with a sense 
that there's nothing to do and no reason to exactly, practice exactly. and they're going to spend the rest of their lives just thinking about uh they're either going to spend the rest of their lives just living a very ordinary life doing all the things they wanted to do anyway and clinging to to all their pleasures and and averting from yeah. all their pains or they're going to develop a concept that just sort of believing that yes, everything's yes, perfect exactly is enough exactly and that's obviously delusional so yes yeah, so on the zogchen side you see people attachment to emptiness right right attachment to the view of emptiness yes. is is barring the door to yes. a real yes. a real breakthrough into stabilizing yes. this experience yes, yes. yes. and which takes a tremendous amount of if not effort seeming effort because yeah. these people spend years on retreat doing nothing but meditate yes, yes. so we, we okay. agree that, that that's okay. that's on the menu okay. even if you do right. recognize the nature the, <laughs> right. the, the empty nature of consciousness right okay going back to going back to the vipassana once from that from that point of purification of view mm. where one has really seen that the whole process is just this knowing an object arising passing it's all happening by itself there there is there is an effort to get to that point from that point even though one can be pulled out of it by as I was with trying to get back my body of light, and I was mm -hmm. just not practicing in a correct way. But from that point, if one is in alignment with what mindfulness actually means, then even though there's a goal, one has dropped back into the unfolding process. Right. There's not a there's not a sense of oh I'm not there yet. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and struggle, and but and it, that that's it, always uh, available. Yeah, well, no, but that's not always available because I've I've been that person who cycled back and forth from retreat and, and back into life right. and then back to retreat. Well, it and, hasn't been stabilized then. In the same, I mean, I, I've I've experienced some of that, but also experienced times when that's that's just there, that's always there, but it's all, that's but always it's, accessible. It's always there when you're not on retreat. Yeah. So it's a, so that yeah. is synonymous with your mindfulness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so it, yeah. and that's a kind of stabilizing. Right. Which is similar to the stabilizing of the recognition. You know, it's just one doesn't have to one doesn't have to build up the momentum to get there again. Right. It's just right. it's what's there. How is that the case? If because then what you're describing is a level of concentration. So let's say you're not on retreat and you're only going to sit for a half hour right, today right. and you and you sit you close your eyes you start focusing on the breath whatever just down, open awareness open or awareness whatever. if you're if you are nowhere near as concentrated as you you are in the best sitting of your longest retreat no, but but there's a difference between having the momentum not of, that of concentration and not Mo momentum is a retreat-like phenomenon that was contingent upon being seriously concentrated. Yeah, but what what I'm saying is that at a certain point... Even in your daily life, yes, off retreat, yes. your your experiences of, of sitting yes. is one of being concentrated... Concentrated enough to... To have that same character yes, yeah, of... Yeah, yes. yeah. And that, to me, that's kind of an interesting development. It has been in Vipassana, because that is a kind of stabilizing... You're no longer struggling 
to get any place. Yes. You're just there in and it's just it's just unfolding. And that's that's really how it is, you know, now. That's not surprising to me. I'm trying to get it. What mm. is what is surprising to me here? The <laughs> it's not because it the mo- the momentum has something to do with many moments together. What you can experience at time X is in some sense conditioned by what you experienced at t- time x minus one or x minus two you know it, it, it's it, it, that's mm-hmm. what what momentum is and if you are if you have been lost for in thought for five minutes if such a delusional experience could ever happen to you or you're asleep and dreaming and you wake up the question is what can this these next two seconds be like and there's a sense in vipassana that for those next two seconds to, to really deliver the goods, to be really like the best two seconds on a retreat, something has to be unusual. You spend a lot of time in Vipassana noticing sensory phenomenon with increasing apparent depth and subtlety. Everything starts happening very fast at points and things disappear I and mean, things that were there or normally there in, in sort of coarse awareness are no longer there, the boundaries of your body or whatever. Things are different. Things are not truly ordinary. There can be a sense that ordinary mindfulness of just a truly ordinary sensation just noticed uh-huh. doesn't taste like it does. freedom. Oh, okay, so it does. It does. But from from the, the Dzogchen side, that's the point that has to be grasped right. in order to even feel like you you're, you can start. That's emphasized so much from the beginning that there is no there is no depth freedom is right on the no, surface I, I, there's no depth there's no subtlety <laughs> the, the changes in the pyrotechnics of meditative yeah, change but, but, don't mean anything but <laughs> but but that but, see, but that that has a psychological consequence it's unthinkable to be the yogi who is trying to get back to the body of light in that sense i mean like to, to spend 2 years trying to how you how could you do that from the zogchen side having been given the Dzogchen logic of practice. Right. No, I, I, that that is a particular potential pitfall of the Vipassana map. But as you said, Dzogchen has its own potential pitfalls. Right. And they happen to be different. But, Except within Dzogchen, they're not, those pitfalls are criticized enough that they're, they're not really, I mean, the, the, the real pitfall is the so like the Advaita Vedantic version of Dzogchen, whereas what you t- in in the, the kind of the talking school of non-duality, where you you're sitting mm. with someone who's mm. talking about non-duality, mm. and there's there's nothing to do really. No, there there are other pitfalls in Dzogchen, b- okay. beside the one, but I mean I I don't think this pitfall in Vipassana. I mean I think, for example, if I had been practicing with Upandita. Mm. That would have he been. He would have gotten you past. Oh, that. I think really quickly. I mean, I, and I had many examples of that, right? Where he would just see. But I, but you must you had you must have had examples of practicing, striving in your practice with, under Upandita, and getting into a very goal oriented, effortful, and pa- therefore painful attempt to get somewhere with the practice. 
because I know I know what right. it's like to sit with Upandita, and that's he that's coming out of his pores. That <laughs> if, 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 I, I heard I, I heard him say to someone in in, uh, in, in as you know with with practicing with Upandita, you could hear the interviews with other yogis. You know the, the interview before you and the interview after you as you were creeping out of the room, and. Uh, some of the stuff he would say, he was a, he was a drill sergeant. Yeah, but but also, it's ve it's very hard to because <laughs> I can't remember whether I, it was it was you, it's your story, or whether I overheard this with another yogi. But but he said it's a pity you don't have more courage. To, to, was that was that you or was that the? He, no, he said something like, uh, uh, "Don't you have any pride in being a man?" <laughs> But one of the interesting things that I came to appreciate about him was, and I, I saw this over time, it wasn't mm -hmm. immediately apparent, that he would often be saying these kind of outrageous things, and he would keep doing it until there was no longer a reaction in my mind. And as soon as I got to a place of lightness, that's very Zen of him. It is. It was. Yeah. I mean, and I saw that, and, and there were a few very striking examples. As soon as I stopped reacting to his trying to push my buttons, right. he stopped doing it. Yeah. And and actually, the whole relationship and style of his teaching changed. So in some way, and I'm not to say he never kind of emphasized the striving and all that, but. It's not to take everything on face value when you when you see the approach right. of different things, because sometimes they're doing things as a skillful means to get people to unhook. And that was just... My experience with him was the opposite. I, I knew his reputation, and I heard how mm. he was dealing with other people, and I was, I was practicing in a very effortful mm. mode just because of, right. I was very goal-oriented mm. at that point. But his direct communication to me was much he was just a sweet old okay, man right. who was very encouraging and also problematically he conveyed at the end of you know near the end of one of those two-month retreats with him clearly to his eye and to my eye i was in the state of equanimity where everything was just humming along fine and he but then he said something like well if you know if you just keep doing everything in this mm -hmm. way and something very interesting may happen for you mm -hmm. in the, I mean, so he was he was talking about yeah, yeah. stream entry yeah yeah so I know what it's like to be practicing effortlessly, to have it all yes, seem yes, great, yes. to be in this very, you know, if, if you could just have made, if you could have told yeah, me, yeah, yeah. this is what your mind is going to be like for the rest of your life, I would say, okay, that's mm -hmm. probably good enough. This feels enlightened. You know, this feels like there's no suffering. The yeah. body's great. Mm -hmm. I'm noticing everything. I'm concentrated. There's mm -hmm. no effort. But still, I was waiting yeah, yeah. for something to happen yeah. on some, you know, all the other, in all the other moments that yeah. I'm not being mindful. And all of that, that very rarefied awareness was clearly a re contingent upon being on retreat, meditating right. 18 hours a day. Right. And no, that, it, was that, not, that's I, it was not something I was going to get in traffic yeah. three months later yeah. when I'm yeah. back living my life. Yeah. And that, that duality. Yeah, is, is, but, but what I'm saying is that, that there is that experience and that's highlighted because of the importance given to this notion of uprooting defilements, which is a different... A different model. That's a different model. But given the importance within within this 
the Vipassana tradition, or particularly the Burmese of the subverting, that's understandable. That can be there, and one can also come to a place in Vipassana where one drops into that, that it's not dependent on those rarefied conditions. So that is the, the character, the ordinary character of one's mindfulness. Yes. One, one of the ways that I've been teaching as a way of directing people to the ordinariness of selflessness, mm. that where it's not dependent on momentum, is in the simplicity of just a move, moving one's arm, mm. moving the leg. And one of the one of the the methods I've been using is reframing it, reframing the experience in the passive voice. So, for example, you're just moving the arm. And generally, even if one is not actually conceptualizing it in words, as you've pointed out, the common way of perceiving it is, I'm moving my arm, or I'm knowing the movement. And that's the active, the active voice in English. By putting it into the passive voice, movement being known. It's just movement being known. In the passive voice construction, there's no subject. So just a, just the switch of language, and I found just doing that, in the simplest movement, one is right there in the experience right. of the selflessness of the whole part, the selfless, because it's actually pointing to the knowing. It, it's just in the, in the phrase, mm. sensations being known, it brings in the knowing equal to the sensation. Right. But you, so, With, but don't you, you don't think that is contingent upon a person already having this recognition no. of selflessness? Clearly someone could still just have this thought, they could adopt this as a mantra, movement being known, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's just, if it's it, just language in the No, language, if, it, right? if, it, if it's just language. But again, it's, it's the difference between language as a description and, and language, language as, a, as an instruction. Right. And, and I'm not saying that everybody will immediately get the instruction, yeah. but it's not that complicated. You know, and people have, oh, yeah, things are being known moment right. after moment. Right. And right there is one is in that state of selfless awareness that's not dependent on rarefied conditions. So I think the stability of that, I think, depends on a lot of factors. Right. And concentration being one of them, having because concentration means undistractedness. You know, and so the more concentration is developed in the mind, you know, and is just is there as a quality of the mind, mm. the more stable that'll be. The, the mind will get distracted less often. So I think within Vipassana also, it's not, I, I grant you that it's not always taught this way because of the, the, the importance given to that moment of uprooting. Yeah. And so it's not often emphasized that it's right here. Yeah. But this is, Part of what has been interested me in these last years is to emphasize this aspect. And there, there are, this is just one example of how it can be done. There, 
there are other ways that point to the immediacy of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just want to, while, while I was, we're talking this yeah. time, and there's one other point I just want to make about mm. one of the potential pitfalls of Dzogchen mm. that for me is very interesting. And it actually points to uh, some different schools in Tibetan Buddhism. And it highlights just in, uh, to me a very interesting difference of experience and description. You know, as as you know, the, in Dzogchen, the nature of mind is described as the union of clarity and emptiness, mm. or awareness and emptiness, and the inseparable unity of them. Mm. People can recognize the awareness aspect without necessarily a full recognition of its empty aspect. Mm. Because the as subtle as awareness is, that aspect is more obvious than its empty aspect, yeah. which is even more. Well, I, actually, that, that, that's and, a just let me just, you, just let me finish. The, well, we should clarify this uh, concept of emptiness, because obviously most uh, people listening to this aren't going to know what we're talking right, about. Right. But it actually is not quite the same thing as selflessness. I mean, it, no, no, it, no, 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 it's not. It, it, it covers selflessness, yeah, 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 but selflessness yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah, quite yeah, cover emptiness. Yeah, yeah. So. No, emptiness, and, and I love this this aspect, and I, I brought it in actually to Vipassana. Mm -hmm. As Tulko Ergen would often say, you know, you look for the mind and can't find it. Mm -hmm. And the not finding is the finding. Right. And so it's that unfindability with which which is the experience of its emptiness that it can't be found right and that's found there are certain zen teachings which which point to that same thing are, are you in danger of forgetting what you're where you now want to go because i think we should unpack emptiness a little bit more but we can do it after okay let's do it after okay <laughs> i just screwed you up <laughs> within the tibetan schools and they talk about it, the second turning and the third turning. Mm. You know, there's there's a lot of historical development of Tibetan Buddhism, but different schools emphasize. I mean, one criticism of Dzogchen from some of the other Tibetan schools is that they feel the danger is in some way reifying awareness. Mm. Now, from Dzogchen's perspective, they're emphasizing, no, it's empty. Right. But from the other schools, they give more emphasis to the emptiness aspect rather than right. the awareness aspect, Yeah. which is the Dzogchen criticism of them. <laughs> so it yeah. just, to me, points that it's these two aspects, the empty aspect and the awareness aspect and the inseparability of them, mm. That's the key. I mean, without that, one is not practicing Dzogchen. And the danger of recognizing awareness without, without necessarily having the deep realization of the empty aspect. Right. And so I hear, not necessarily with Dzogchen, but in general in spiritual scene, and even within some Theravada schools, phrases like make a home of awareness mm. or 
just some way in which awareness becomes even a yeah. thing, even in its most refined and even non-dual awareness. Right. That phrase to me, yes, in, in its in the depth of correct understanding, it incorporates the realization of its emptiness. Yeah. But it, it's very easy, I feel, to miss that point. Yeah. And, and so one, yeah, one is awareness is spacious, it's open, it's non-dual. Well, that, but yeah. the non-dual for me really is the, the most important conceptual hook here because it, it, non-dual for me, if you actually get it, covers selflessness and it covers emptiness. It's possible to use that word and obviously not get it, but the yeah. the, the non-duality is the loss of the subject-object duality. The duality that one is negating yeah. is subject-object perception. Yes. To lose the sense of being the subject as opposed to the objects is an insight into selflessness. The self isn't there, right? You can't, you look for the self, right. you can't find it. There's just awareness left. You find the absence of the self. Yeah, but... But, but <laughs> the other feature of emptiness is that it's not just that the self isn't there, it's that everything that seems to be there is of is just an expression of con it's, it's not that consciousness has all of these objects that are really That's objects yeah. as oh, it, it there's just this yes in some ways paradoxical condition of it's all consciousness and its forms the boundary between one thing and another is purely conceptual so, in some sense so, nothing is happening the best analogy to come out of the teachings i think is that of a light in a mirror you know you can hold a mirror up to a battlefield you know, war sequence, and a lot seems to be happening, uh, and a lot is happening, obviously, in the, in the world, but in the mirror... Yeah, well, it's like a movie. Yeah, no, you can see everything clearly. Nothing it, is really exactly, happening. Exactly. Yes, yes. So that is an analogy that captures this no, the but, paradoxical quality of, of, of everything seeming to happen, and yet, on some level, nothing is, in fact, happening. Yeah, but I think that... <laughs> and the, and, I, I, and the, the condition of there being no center to that yeah, experience... Yes is the thing that makes the, the salience of yeah, nothing really happening. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I have two, I have two yeah. comments about okay. this. Okay. <laughs> One is this, this is a rejoinder to your <laughs> criticism of Vipassana, of how it's dependent on certain rarefied conditions. Right. To, so, okay, given that description, right. How often is one living in that experience? For for Dzogchen practitioners, the the description you just described, right. I think well, well, no, it's but it, very rare. No, but actually, well, so the question is, how long does it take? What? How much stability do you need for that taste of the dreamlike quality or the mirror-like quality mm -hmm. of? experience to be present no one can see it in a moment yes okay so but but in, no but but in terms of actually, how much of one's life is, is spent yeah, there yes not minuscule minuscule <laughs> minuscule so so in terms of the actual experiencing the fruit of these various practices I don't see much difference. No, but that, that's what I would challenge you on, because it, the, the difference is, there is a, it, it's a difference between feeling that one can break through to the 
to the goal what, what are they going to call it yeah, non-duality no, or emptiness i understand or, this that, that totally like yes, that, that's, yes. It's, i mean the, the, but practically speaking in terms of freedom of mind in a life so it's true yeah. okay <laughs> the, <laughs> the path is the goal and the goal is the path <laughs> but <laughs> but it, but it, it's it's arguably true and only I mean, only on one map as opposed to the other no no because as i was saying just in the examples i was giving before i think it's possible and it's not always taught this because of the emphasis on that moment right. of uprooting but I, i've been taking much more interest in teaching vipassana from that perspective that yeah. that it's right here you know that 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 selfless understanding and the and really the recognition of that quality the nature of mind in that moment mm. can can be right here so i was going to say something oh so just going back to your i think what you said as the as one of the aspects of emptiness is really important I I tend to give more emphasis to the unfindability aspect. And but I think both are important. But I see even in your description of or just in every way you described it, there still is the potential for being identified with that whole with your whole description. Right. And so the, there has to be something. Well, that that's why I feel like non-duality is the crucial. No, because there could case. there could no, I, I, no, cause not because well, not there is no thing to be identified with. That's why it's non-dual. That's no, why it's not. That's why it's not oneness. You wouldn't say a oneness of because uh, it's very easy. And this is uh, this is obviously the criticism of the the Advaita Vedanta's uh, uh, side of things, where you just rather than talk about non-duality or or selflessness, you just Right, right. self capital s right, you know right, and, and, right. and it's the self right, and it's right. just big. consciousness is yeah. big consciousness yeah, yeah. and then you'll have deepak chopra telling you mm. that's the thing that gave rise to the universe right, right. this sense of there truly being no center then what remains is yeah, so, so just that, the, you call it the world yeah no, the I, world. That, yeah that that to me is when i think of different kinds this goes back to using the term oneness mm there's a oneness <laughs> that comes from being one <laughs> and there's a oneness that's the result of zero which is what you're saying when mm -hmm. when there's no when there's no sense of self there's just everything that's left yeah. right yeah everything's so, still left yeah there's still a yeah paper no I, and a water I, bottle and yeah, yeah. yeah i'm totally in agreement with that yeah Okay. Well, maybe, maybe that's a good, a good note to end on. I just—it'll be interesting to listen to it and see yeah. if it has would have even the remotest interest to anybody else. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, obviously, I, I think we've pushed into areas that are so esoteric as to leave us with an audience of, of, of four people, four diehards. But um, we will see. Uh -huh. So, in any uh -huh. case, thank you for doing it. Thank uh -huh. you. You, uh, you're now on record on on many points that. Maybe you maybe you've said many of these things before, but I, I think it would be hard to find them all in one yeah, place. Yeah, so yeah. those four of you who are still left, <laughs> if you want to know more about Joseph's work, you can go to the website of his meditation center, uh, which is the Insight Meditation Society. The website is dharma.org. 
and um, he has uh, several books, the first of which, with the experience of insight, is a very clear articulation of how you practice Vipassana on retreat, and he has several other books uh, beyond that, um, one Dharma being perhaps most relevant to this discussion, would you say, Joseph? Mm, perhaps. Um, and the last book being really the, the culmination of... The last one, which was... Mindfulness. Mind mindfulness, mindfulness yeah. a practical guide to awakening. So uh, do get that. If you um, enjoy our, um, our back and forth here, that's a, a good way to uh, subsidize it. Thank you, Joseph. You're welcome. This was fun. If you find this podcast valuable... There are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.